I don't know if you've noticed this, but Scripture pretty consistently makes a connection that you and I, I think, would prefer it didn't make. It regularly draws a connecting line between our attitude of heart to the Lord and our attitude of heart to one another. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Today we're continuing a message we began last time, Seeking True Blessing. And Jonathan, for those who haven't noticed that connecting line between the two, why is that so important or significant? The Bible teaches us that our behavior toward one another, our treatment of one another, it's significant in the eyes of God. And actually, as we mistreat one another, as as we sometimes do, as we behave toward one another in ways that are not pleasing to God, actually, that can be a real diagnostic for us. It can show us that there is something wrong with our heart, and there is something actually that is not right between us and God. Our, our relational troubles on the horizontal plane can show us that there is actually a problem on the vertical plane. And seeing that, recognizing that, well, well, that can be a help to us. So if someone finds that they have trouble getting along with others and they have a hard time maybe maintaining relationships and friendships, uh, that might, I hear you saying, that might be an indicator that uh, they need to maybe check their heart and see how they stand with God as well. It might well be just the prompt that is needed to look to the Lord and say, actually, Lord, I need your help. I, I see I need to change, but I can't change. And it is heart change that Jesus offers us in the gospel. And we're going to be hearing a little bit more about that in this series. Well, we are going to do that today from Matthew chapter 5. Hope you'll grab a Bible. Join us there as we continue a message called Seeking True Blessing. Here is Jonathan. All this, of course, raises an obvious question for each one of us here this morning. And the question is this, is your heart the kind of heart that Jesus describes here in these Beatitudes? Is my heart the kind of heart before the Lord that receives his kingdom blessings? Have you ever really known that poverty of spirit that Jesus speaks about here, that mourning over sin, that deep hunger to be made right with God? I guess that for a number here, you've never actually known that and never really experienced it. You may have been coming to church a very long time and not experienced it. You may consider yourself a Christian, but you've never actually made that response of heart. And if you've never made that response, if you've never reached that place, well, the message of Jesus is clear. You cannot know the blessing of God. The kingdom of heaven, verse 3, doesn't belong to any but these. And so if that's the case for you this morning, and I guess it will be for a number here perhaps, let me urge you today to examine your heart before the Lord and to ask him to bring you to that point, that realization of poverty, that he might make you rich in Christ that he would enable you to mourn the things you've done and the ways you've offended him, that he might comfort you through the gospel of grace, that he would make you meek before him, that you would join in the inheritance of all his people in all eternity, that he would give you an appetite for true righteousness, that he might then make you righteous in Christ. I hope you'll do that today if you haven't. I hope you won't brush off that challenge and that invitation. 
Some of us here, believers here, will remember a time when we were truly poor in spirit before the Lord, mourning over sin, thirsting for righteousness. The words of Jesus here in the Beatitudes, what they do for us this morning is they actually call to mind an earlier stage in our Christian experience. But over time, if we're being perfectly honest with ourselves and before the Lord this morning, over time, our hearts have grown insensitive to our sin. We've become comfortable with ourselves. We've developed a sense of perhaps our own righteousness, our own self-satisfaction, self-assurance before the Lord. And Jesus wants us to know and to remember this morning that the heart of a true kingdom person, the heart of the person who enjoys God's eternal blessing, well, it's not like that. And perhaps some of us here this morning, we need to come before the Lord and plead with him that he would break our heart afresh before him, really make us hate our sin once more and grieve it, really cause us to cling to the cross as impoverished sinners entirely reliant on the Savior. I expect perhaps a number of people here today, a number of us need to return to that place, and we need to cry out to the Lord that he would enable us to do that. This attitude of heart, this disposition of spirit, it won't just be expressed privately to the Lord, though. It will show itself in our interactions with one another, and that's where Jesus' focus turns now. Verse 7, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Scripture pretty consistently makes a connection that you and I, I think, would prefer it didn't make. It regularly draws a line of connection, a connecting line, between our attitude of heart to the Lord and our attitude of heart to one another. That's an awkward thing sometimes, isn't it? But Scripture does it all the time. It insists that our true heart toward the Lord will be shown in our heart and our behavior toward one another. The two are inseparably linked as far as the Lord is concerned. That's awkward for us because we would love to be able to claim that we honor the Lord in our heart of hearts. We love Him and we serve Him and we trust Him. We'd love to be able to claim that with all integrity and yet be free to brush aside people we don't like or the people we don't want to bother with. We'd love to have a license to be offhand, even aggressive, even self-serving when it comes to our treatment of others, but still have a good claim to be a Christian believer in good standing. It's amazing how easy it is for human beings to operate as divided personalities. We've all seen this in action. We're all capable of doing it ourselves. A few years ago, an English translation came out of the memoirs of Christa Schroeder, one of Hitler's personal assistants. It's both fascinating and deeply disturbing to read her accounts of Hitler stopping in to have tea and a, a friendly chat with some of the office workers while millions were being persecuted and murdered under his orders at the very same time. His was a divided personality, a man of ugly contradiction. And it's no surprise that Jesus gives us no permission to be divided and contradictory people. 
The blessed person, the kingdom person, is not simply the person who over here claims to have a broken heart, a mournful heart before the Lord. It is the person whose heart before the Lord, whose broken heart, whose mournful heart, whose meekness before the Lord will be evident in their treatment of other people. Our broken heart before the Lord will be evident as we show mercy to others, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The person who knows full well their spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord, their guilt, their need of forgiveness, the person who knows that they deserve to face the very judgment of God, but who cast themselves on his mercy in Christ, that person is going to be merciful toward others. When someone does wrong to that person, they won't seek retribution but will have a heart of mercy. Such a person is truly blessed because they will receive the Lord's mercy at the final day. Their merciful heart is proof positive that they have understood the mercy of God in Christ and are trusting in that mercy. The person whose heart is broken before the Lord and who receives his salvation is one who is, verse 8, pure in heart. This person knows full well that the sin of their own hearts is great and the deception of their own heart is very deep. But they long before the Lord to honor him and to serve him with integrity. And there is a purity of heart there, not of perfection, but a purity of heart there that is evident to others. There is integrity. There is something transparent. There is a lack of double purpose, of selfish intent, a lack of malice. A person who has seen and experienced the kindness of God in Jesus Christ will be, verse 9, a peacemaker. They've known that desperate experience of being at enmity with God. They've known that longing for peace with God. And they've known that joy of forgiveness when they've experienced it in Christ. And so such a person, well, they will strive and long for peace above all other things. Such people, verse 9, will be called sons of God. They show the family likeness of their father. Just as God reaches out across lines of conflict and division to make peace with his enemies, even at the cost of the death of his son, so too his children will love peace and seek peace and pursue peace. There's a deep challenge here, I think, for all of us. There's a deep challenge because I think we can all believe that we can be privately right before the Lord and have a right heart before Him, be in good standing with Him, but then be free over here to treat others as we please. Our spiritual life over here, that is one thing, that is a private matter, but our business relationships, our, our family relationships, even our relationships within the church, that's another matter, and we divide the two. But Jesus here in these verses is giving a complete, a holistic picture of the kingdom person of the person who enjoys the eternal blessings of God, and he will not allow us to separate our private religious life before the Lord and our public life and our interactions. And so the bottom line is this, none of us can claim to have a right heart before the Lord if we will not treat others in the way described here. There's another aspect of our lifestyle that will be impacted if our hearts have been broken before the Lord and through the gospel. And that is perhaps the most uncomfortable bit of all, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This characteristic of the blessed person is a little different from the others we've just been looking at. In the other cases, it's been all about our heart and our behavior. But now we're told that blessing will come to the person who is treated by others in a particular way. People who are persecuted, persecuted for a specific reason, they will be blessed by God. And notice what the reason for this persecution is. It is persecution for righteousness. It is persecution for the sake of Christ. It's important to take note of the very deep encouragement of these verses. Some here this morning at the present time will be facing very real and very painful opposition or even persecution for their allegiance to Christ. And some here will have lived through real persecution at other times and in other contexts elsewhere. No one likes the thought of being persecuted. And as we hear reports of violent persecution of believers in other places, our hearts are broken for them, and we long that they should be delivered from that. The thought of persecution is dreadful, but it's wonderful to read here that the persecuted believer is blessed by God. They're blessed, verse 10, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. If they are facing persecution for the name of Christ, well, that is a sure sign that they belong to Christ. They are blessed, verse 11, because they have an eternal reward before them, an eternal kingdom to which they belong, an eternal home in heaven. What is the person like who has truly repented and who has truly turned to the Lord, who has received God's salvation blessings, who receives his eternal blessing? That person is poor in spirit. That person is brokenhearted before the Lord. That person is full of mercy and purity of heart toward others. That person is so countercultural in their way of life that they attract notice and even persecution for the sake of Christ and for his name. That's the person who receives God's salvation blessings. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Seeking True Blessing the first in a series all about the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling God's Blueprint for a New Society. Today, really taking a look at the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5. I hope that uh, you'll stay with us because we're going to get back to this message in just a moment. If you ever miss a broadcast or you want to go back and listen again, you can always do that by coming to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org, EncounterTheTruth.org. All right, back to the message. Here's Jonathan. Now, Jesus turns next and more briefly to show us the purpose of God's great blessing of his people. When our first child was born over in London in 2009, the UK was in a, at the government level, was in a generous and kind of high spending mode. The years of austerity hadn't yet kicked in. And as we left the hospital with our newborn, we were given a flyer to encourage us to sign up for a state-funded trust fund for our new baby boy. There was no means testing. Everyone got this trust fund giveaway. There was no real explanation of why it was being given to everyone. It was basically just a government cash giveaway with no strings attached. We gratefully signed up for it, of course. 
But we found ourselves wondering who came up with the idea, what exactly they were thinking of, and just how long they would keep their job. That was a blessing without much real purpose. But it shouldn't surprise us that God is purposeful in all He does, and He is purposeful as He lavishes blessings on His saved people. Jesus uses images here to illustrate for us the purpose for which God blesses His people. The first is the image of salt in verse 13. You are, you the blessed, the saved people, you are the salt of the earth, says Jesus. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Salt in the ancient world was used both to preserve and to flavor food. In a warm climate without modern refrigeration, the first function was undoubtedly the most significant, to preserve food from decay. Salt that was available in Jesus' day isn't like the uh, pure salt that we're able to buy in our supermarkets today. That salt would have been mixed with other substances as it was gathered, and over time, the salt in the mixture would be more soluble and would kind of leach away from the mixture, leaving more sand than salt in what was meant to be salt. And ultimately, that stuff would be no good for flavoring or preserving anything. Now, today, we take our ability to preserve food entirely for granted. We go to Costco, we bring our stuff home, we put it in the fridge, and it stays good for basically as long as we need it. At our house, we had the unhappy experience the other day of noticing that our food wasn't staying quite as cool as it should. Things in the freezer were a little bit softer than they should be. Then we noticed that the fridge wasn't smelling quite as nice as it should smell. And then we discovered that the compressor wasn't doing its job properly. We brought someone in at great expense to have it fixed, but it was no use. They couldn't fix it. We had to order a new fridge and then wait a few days for delivery. Now, in the process, of course, lots of food went bad, and it had to be thrown out. I was kind of amazed how quickly that happened. When the temperature went up just a few degrees, the food spoiled very quickly indeed. Without proper preservation, food rots. And Jesus is telling us that God has given his followers to the world that they might be the salt of the earth. God has blessed his people that they might be a preservative to a society in a process of decay. We sometimes use that phrase, the salt of the earth, to describe a, you know, a really nice person. They're so nice, these people. They're the salt of the earth. But Jesus is being more specific than that here. His people are meant not simply to be nice, not simply to be pleasant, not simply to be smiley, but they are to act as preservatives in a decaying society. And so his point here is that we must be and we must remain distinctive if we are to have that preserving effect in our society. We cannot lose our saltiness. Later in the sermon, Jesus is going to draw out and spend quite a lot of time on what that distinctive living will look like, what saltiness will look like. But right now, his point is that his blessed, saved people, the people of the kingdom, they are set apart and blessed in order to be distinctive and to have a positive effect on the society around them. Where evil abounds, God's people are to live with integrity. Where lies abound, we are to stand for truth. Where hatred and a lack of concern for others abound when everyone is out for themselves, 
we are to love our neighbors and stick up for the needy, the vulnerable, and the marginalized. The decay of our society should be slower because we're here. It won't stop altogether. A judgment and a new creation are on the way, but our presence here is meant to be a gift to the world. It is meant to be a preservative. Jesus' next image makes a similar point. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. An ancient city in the Middle East built on a hill as so many were for the sake of defense, dotted with whitewashed buildings gleaming in the sunshine, and then the oil lanterns with the open windows at night would cast light from the windows. Such a city could never be hidden. Its light is visible from afar. Kingdom people, the people blessed by Jesus, their distinctive way of life is a light in a darkened world. The light of the kingdom person is meant to cast light on other people. Others are meant to see that light and then look to the Father of light and praise Him and glorify Him. Verses 13 to 16 are very familiar verses, and their familiarity can easily blind us to what they're saying. But their message is crystal clear, and it's immensely challenging. Jesus is telling us here that people are saved by God, they are blessed by God, that, well, we might have an impact upon our society, that we might be a witness to our society. He is telling us that we have been saved in order that we might engage with the world around us. Now, that's immensely challenging because it's easy for us to believe the very opposite, actually. It's easy for us to believe that we have been saved in order that we might be allowed to disengage from the world around us and escape all the mess around us. After all, we've been saved from the world's empty and fruitless way of life. And some of us will have very dramatic stories to tell of the way of life that God has rescued us from. And it's easy to think that we have been saved from the world so that we might retreat from all the evil and all the mess around us. But the Lord Jesus won't countenance that kind of outlook. He won't allow us the easy and the comfortable option of retreat. He wants us to engage. He calls us to engage. I gather that when salt was used to preserve meat, it had to be rubbed into the meat to have any real effect of preservation. Now, that makes sense, of course, when you picture it and think about it. And of course, we can't hope of having a preserving effect on our deteriorating society, and it is deteriorating. We can't hope to have that preserving effect if we lock away ourselves in an evangelical huddle and an evangelical bubble, if we won't get involved in our communities, if we won't get to know our unbelieving neighbors and colleagues, if we don't pay any attention to the political and social landscape of our nation. We need to be engaged. We need to be involved. We need to be present. We need to be rubbed into our community and our society. Not in such a way that we're compromised. We stay distinctive. Not in such a way that we lose our saltiness, oh no. But God has blessed us in order that we might be salt, in order that we might be a visible light, 
and in order that all glory might go to him. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and we're wrapping up our message, Seeking True Blessing. It's part of our series on the Sermon on the Mount called God's Blueprint for a New Society. Today, looking at Matthew 5, verses 1 to 16. And if you've missed any part of today's broadcast, you can go back and listen online. Our website is EncounterTheTruth.org. There you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen if you have the Encounter the Truth app. That's free, and you're going to find that at your app store. But whether you listen online, through the radio, or through the app, it's all made possible through your generosity. So thank you for giving to and supporting this ministry. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a copy of Jonathan's book, Light of the World. It's our thank you gift to you for your financial support. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-998-7884. That's 1-833-99-TRUTH. Or again, the website is EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan Griffiths and our producer, Mark Breda, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.